What does it take to build a movement that's truly led by families? Today, many in philanthropy say they believe in movement building. Marguerite Casey Foundation has been committed to it with a clear strategy for two decades. It is at the core of the foundation's mission to nurture a national movement of low-income families advocating on their own behalf for economic and social justice. This is The Revolution Will Be Local, a movement-building podcast. In this episode, you will meet Shaka Barrows, the founding member of the W. Haywood Burns Institute, which engages in policy advocacy and movement building based on research and analysis informed by ideas and experiences of families. Shaka will talk about how the Institute uses data to support policies that reduce racial and ethnic disparities in the criminal justice system. My name is Shaka Barrows. I'm the uh, chief executive officer with the W. Haywood Burns Institute based in Oakland, California. It's a national nonprofit focused on addressing racial and ethnic disparities within the context of justice. The courts, youth court, juvenile court, probation, prosecution, pretty much everybody, the full spectrum. We also engage people directly impacted by these issues from communities of color that are overrepresented in those local systems to come together, build a collaborative to better understand how the very administration of justice is contributing to the racial and ethnic disparity crisis that we have in the country. When I was in elementary school, for whatever reason, the teachers thought it was a good idea to take me on some kind of scared straight program. So we went to this prison, watched the men in the yard. and They were supposed to scare us, but essentially I saw a bunch of black people all locked up. I didn't walk away feeling scared, but more angry at what I saw as an attack. And so from a very young age, this issue of incarceration coupled with racial oppression as a direct descendant of slavery, for me, it's beyond personal. I just feel like it's something that we as human beings have to reckon with. At the Burns Institute, we call reform harm reduction because we're really trying to reduce the harm that the system is creating. And much of the reform work happens in a context, I think, that's a little too narrowly focused just on the apparatus of justice, rather than looking more broadly at the entire society and understanding how historical racial oppression really feeds into all the dynamics that underpin the disparities that we see in the justice sector. The issue of racial and ethnic disparities has actually persisted. In many cases, the disparity looks even more stark. So if you drop the population overall by 100 youth, and say say your facility had 200 youth in it, so you drop half by 100. Of the 100 you drop, typically in reform, if you had a population of young white kids in your facility, they would be quickest to be released. Kids of color have languished, even in spite of all the reforms, because those reforms weren't targeting necessarily racial and ethnic disparity treatment and the harm that's caused by it. They were really looking at policy practice change with the goal of reduction of the overall numbers. If you don't have that kind of intentional focus, then you're not going to address the contributing factors, the culture of the agency itself. What are the narratives that folks carry when they come to work? How pervasive is the sense that a certain community is dangerous and therefore we have to intervene in these kind of ways that bring in custody, suppression, and control? Those become the dynamics that rarely reform digs deep enough to get to. Just think about your own city. Everybody I know knows of a dangerous neighborhood in their city. Maybe they live in it or they're at least familiar with it. What makes it dangerous? 
Is it that the trees attack you? Is the air poisonous? What's happening to create this danger? What's happened is disinvestment. The disinvestment creates this kind of real panicky, urgent sense of crisis in those communities. And so then we say it's dangerous because people are there struggling to survive, doing whatever they have to do to survive. And if that creates a sense of destabilization, that can then lead to violence. And so then the justice system is engaged, lay it down the law, and everyone can be looking like a criminal. And it's always born out of this so-called dangerous neighborhood, which then creates this narrative where you have to come in with this really tough mentality, us against them. All the interventions come with a criminal enforcement. So if you're missing school and you get arrested, brought in for uh, willful misconduct or malicious disbehavior, I mean, there's all these little terms that we have to basically label young people as undesirable. And because you live where you live, we're not going to give you the soft intervention. We're coming with handcuffs. We're going to lock you up in a juvenile hall. Juvenile court judge is going to there put you on probation, give you all these terms of probation that we know you're going to fail right away. Any kid in this country will fail them because it's easy to fail. Now they're violated some term of their probation. They get remanded back to juvenile hall. So now they're not in school. Now they have multiple incidences of going to juvenile hall. Now they're known in the probation department. All of this is not because this youngster was necessarily a threat to public safety. It's much more because this young person grew up in that so-called dangerous neighborhood. So all the investment, all the resources that we could use to change the conditions in those neighborhoods that we claim to be dangerous, that resource is tied up in addressing that so-called dangerous neighborhood, not changing the conditions there. And so what we've got is a really expensive, self-promoting system that continues to destabilize certain communities under the veil of protecting other communities from this unsafe community. And you think about how early we tend to lock people up, all the traumas, right? Everything from young people actually dying because of not having the kind of care that they need which is not uncommon to what we've seen in facilities where you see abuse, sexual, physical violence between young people, from staff on young people, and all of this inside a facility that is not set up to do anything else but treat people in a harsh way. Concrete floors, concrete beds, nothing about this is nurturing. And so the harm that it creates, I think, is actually beyond anything we fully know. Uh, we know that the number one correlating event in the life of somebody who ends up in an adult prison is having been locked up as a young person. So people don't walk around feeling like we live in an apartheid state in this country and that we have racial segregation as a policy. But the reality is we absolutely live in an apartheid system. People who face it, they don't believe that justice is blind. They believe that anytime they are before justice, they will not get a fair shot. And then what does it say also to the narrative that any young black man is deemed such a threat that law enforcement officers are going to just shoot them dead? The consequences are not insignificant. We see it when it becomes explosive in our face, but it's happening all the time. It's simmering just under the boiling point on a daily basis. Interestingly, James Bell is the founder of the Burns Institute and for years worked suing facilities on conditions of confinement and how they were treating young people and was very successful. He used to also host delegates from different countries who wanted to come and witness and see what was happening in the United States. 
And he tells a story about a, a delegation he was hosting from Europe, and he took them to the juvenile court in Oakland, Alameda County. And they got to sit and observe, and so they got back to the van, and they asked him, Mr. Bell, good to see this, but are we going to go to the white court next? Right? And he was taken aback, like, whoa. But to the outsider, that is what you see. For him, I think it was a defining moment where he then decided to go specifically and directly about the work of addressing racial and ethnic disparities and not just talking about justice without bringing in the fact that there's institutional historical racism that has been baked into this from the very beginning. At the time, people were saying, don't do justice reform by talking about race. That will never work in this country. Don't bring it up. People will shut down. There's no way that this country will ever stop what it's been doing to people of color. There's nothing. White folks would say this. People of color believe this. I mean, it was a widely held view that this will not go away. The purpose of our agency, we are going to go about this. We're going to take ourselves serious, and we're going to go about addressing this. And so we began to work, find partnerships. And from the very beginning, we engage community members and community organizations in the process. You have to engage people who've been directly impacted. But there's also been an understanding of building a movement. There was a resistance movement that was really coming together in the 90s that continued. It didn't stop. And with the support of the, specifically the support of the Marguerite Casey Foundation, many of these organizations were able to continue through tough times. Having a base of movement, right, having real resources on the ground was critical. And this foundation always prioritized those grassroots organizations. And so there's much to be learned about the work that Marguerite Casey Foundation did to really invest in base-building organizations for the long haul. Equal Voice Action is like a national initiative of Marguerite Casey, and the grantees all have their own bases, right? So everybody's doing their own work. And one of the things that Equal Voice has done is they've created uh, these network weavers who are actual staffed positions. It's really about creating a broader network for all the different grantee organizations to be able to connect, kind of like a swarm of bees come together when necessary to make the big fist, (laughs) to stop something from happening or to push it forward if needed. What we knew from our work was that it was not the youth and their parents deciding who would be detained and who would be released. That was adults who were acting under a culture that was much more about suppression, custody, and control and social control than it was about public safety. And that's still the case today. And that has a real clear cut along racial lines. Offering these frameworks through that larger Equal Voice Network, I think, has been really powerful because then the groups can use those frameworks in their local campaigns and we're able to hit way more targets than we could with our small staff. When we were doing some work in New York City to really dig in and better understand what was happening there, there was a study called Million Dollar Blocks. There were certain neighborhoods that were just overrepresented in the system, but it was powerful to see that in this study, they had identified one block in Brooklyn where $20 million was being spent to lock people up upstate in their facilities. Going to that block-by-block level allowed us to really illustrate, well, no, imagine if we could reinvest. Imagine if the people who lived on this one particular block in Brooklyn had the ability to invest that $20 million however they wanted. Might we see some radically impressive changes in that community and in that neighborhood? And so our work has been about actually 
narrowing down the focus as much as possible so you can go deeper and deeper and deeper, have a better understanding, and be able to create the type of change that will be lasting and have the effect that the people really need. We've worked in a jurisdiction where on any given month, 20 to 30 kids, mostly all black, were violated for their conditions of probation. Essentially, that means that they got picked up for something. could have been very minor. They were assigned to a probation officer. A violation could mean you either never met the probation officer in the first place or you were participating in a particular program, but at some point you either got into it with the staff person or you didn't show up for a meeting or you missed an appointment or you failed to pee in a cup by a certain time. And now they have to report to the judge that you have violated the terms of your probation and therefore you will be eligible to be remanded to the juvenile hall. Then you get out and what do we do? We place you right back in the same situation that you just failed. That's existing policy. That's kind of normal practice, right? And so one of the things that we were able to do is say, well, what if we identified a community organization in the neighborhood that's most targeted for involvement in the system? And what if we were able to hire people who had directly been through this themselves to play a role of community coach? They hired two coaches who had both been directly through the system, and those folks were able to then start playing a role of just connecting with the young people in that community to try to reduce those violations, right? To either make sure they had the connections with the probation officer, that they knew where to go for their appointments, just to provide that additional support. And from somebody who was a trusted, credible messenger, somebody who who had credibility with them because of what they had been through. There was a young woman, her brother was involved in a gang, and her house got shot up because of something that he was doing. The community coach program was up and running. She was on probation. The probation officer reached out and was like, hey, you know, it's dangerous in their neighborhood right now. Community coach, can you maybe reach out and just see how they're doing? Because the PO essentially was not comfortable going to the home at the time. The community coach was from the neighborhood. He was a young man. He was, had no reservations. He went over to the house, brought some food. The connection it wasn't just for the young woman to feel like she had some support. But actually, then the mom is like, oh, this person is available. He's right from our community. So she's asking him to come in and make a connection. Because of the incident with her brother, the school didn't want her coming to school. So the coach went, brought her schoolwork to her, able to help her to maintain her involvement in school so she didn't fully lapse out, allowed for her to actually get through her probation without a violation. And on top of that, we were able to create an opportunity for employment for somebody who had been through the system, meaningful employment, where they could do work that they felt good about, having an impact on a younger community member who is facing the same thing they went through. For us, that local level is really about understanding how to reduce the harm of the justice system. Why wouldn't we want to have a system in place that helps us to all achieve our greatest outcomes? Instead of investing in a huge system that continuously holds people back, puts them into custody, suppression, and control conditions, probation, court. None of that is the picture of productivity and well-being. And the cost that we spend is enormous. We're going to have to do some real deep, radical imagination thinking around what do we need to put in place that may not even exist right now. We're talking about a comprehensive overhaul. So changing laws, changing policy and practice, changing who gets to roll out implementation. Who are the experts? 
Do they bring a community lens? Are they bringing a lens to understand the implications of this new policy on race and ethnicity? Are they bringing a colorblind analysis saying, I don't see color and therefore let's just roll forward and hopefully nothing bad happens? All aspects of how we do what we do have to be looked at. So we're also thinking about how to bring in more people who are formerly incarcerated who've got a lot to say about this to serve as expert TA providers so that the implementer comes in with a passion and a vision and a clear sense for what it's going to take to not just administer justice blindly, but to understand that we don't live in a colorblind society. We live in a hyper-racialized society that requires you to really understand how race and ethnicity play into who gets protected and who gets harmed by our systems. But in the justice sector, we don't see those directly impacted as the experts that they are enough. That, to me, is a big part of the radical imagination is there's people who have already envisioned it. They've got details. They've got thoughts. But we have to listen to them and take them serious if we want to really achieve this. So part of it is not just thinking this can only come from scholars and academics with fancy titles, but that some of the scholars come from prison yards who spent decades really thinking about this stuff in ways that nobody can imagine. It takes a partner like the Marguerite Casey Foundation to take that risk and say, yeah, actually, this is a valuable venture. This is a worthwhile cause. We do believe that this is going to create something meaningful, and we want you to keep doing it. And they didn't try to get in the way and tell us how to do it, and, oh, you should do it this way, not that way, and don't this group, well, not that group, but yes, this group. I mean, they really supported us to do it and allowed us to do it in a way that wasn't disruptive. And so that's unique. I think the support from the Casey Foundation also helped us lift up groups that other foundations would not have known about. And so the benefit of that network was also bringing about more support to those local agencies that were out there doing that frontline work. Take a policy like ban the box, right? So all of us are none, based out of Bay Area, California, passes an ordinance to ban the box on applications requesting you to admit that you're a felon, right? Because that was a huge deterrent from people getting jobs. Through these type of networks, we were able to share that information, share those strategies, and all of us or none could support the groups to take those fights on all over the country to ban the box. That's a policy change that, but for the kind of support of Marguerite Casey, just wouldn't be able to happen the way that it does. This really does make an impact at the policy, but also the institutional and the cultural level. The Revolution Will Be Local, a movement-building podcast, has been brought to you by the Marguerite Casey Foundation. Our strategy is to nurture a national movement of low-income families advocating on their own behalf for social and economic justice. For two decades, Marguerite Casey Foundation has championed the power of movement building, allocating resources to cornerstone organizations through multi-year general support that has helped them build a movement that spans regions, issues, ethnicities, demographics, and generations. To learn more about the foundation and its work, please visit caseygrants.org. If you enjoyed this podcast, remember to leave us a rating or a review.